0: Welcome to the Progressive Money Canada podcast. Worldwide, countries and their citizens are experiencing historic levels of financial debt and a lack of money. Is all this inescapable, or is there an underlying systemic factor that we can change? Join your hosts, Ed and Jeff to explore solutions for correcting our monetary system, the most underappreciated topic of our time.
1: This is episode two, where does money come from? Now, Jeff, in this discussion, there's going to be some confusion with respect to the different types of banks. Central banks, state banks, national banks, commercial banks, if you could just explain the relationship between those players, then that might be a good starting point and then you can go ahead and talk about the money creation process.
0: Okay, sure. I'll start with the commercial banking sector. So those are all the largest major banks that we're all aware of. Probably um, everyone listening have accounts at uh, one of those banks. So the Royal Bank of Canada, the Bank of Montreal, all those uh, commercial banks, they create most of the money uh, in circulation. We also have the Central Bank of Canada called the Bank of Canada. And uh, it provides a, a backstop for both the commercial banking sector and the federal government. So it acts as the fiscal agent for both.
1: Okay. And what about the distinction between central banks and national banks or state banks?
0: You could call it a state bank, the Bank of Canada, because it's essentially owned by the people of Canada. So there are no private interests, although, of course, its policies are... You know, influenced by whatever parliament mandates that it does. You could call that a state-owned bank if you wish, but the rest of them are privately-owned commercial banks, and they're the banking sector that creates the majority of money in circulation. How does that compare to the U.S. system? Well, it's very similar. They have a Federal Reserve system which is comprised of uh, 12 regional banks, uh, which is equivalent to the, the same functions that the Bank of Canada provides here. In Canada, we have just one bank, so it's actually much you know, simpler to illustrate how the system works. Okay. Well, still, just to clarify, I'm asking you about the ownership. You
1: mentioned that the Bank of Canada, which is our national bank, is truly a, a government entity because there's no private shareholding of that bank. Correct. By contrast, the commercial banks, all the ones that we're familiar with, uh, dealing with on a day-to-day basis, of course, those are privately held corporations. Correct. All right. What I'm struggling with is the, the distinction between privately and publicly held. So you know, when you hear discussions of, uh, for example, G. Edward Griffin's book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, probably less well-known is the, the precursor to that, the guy who cracked the story wide open on the Federal Reserve, uh, Eustace Mullins. The discussion points are that the Federal Reserve, for example, which has a, a veneer of a public institution, is actually not public. It's privately held. That's, I think, an important distinction. And I wonder whether the same thing holds in Canada. But from what you've already said, uh, it seems that's not the case. Uh, The Bank of Canada is actually 100% owned by the government
0: itself. Am I right so far? Yep. So I can expound on it a little bit as far as the Federal Reserve System. You're right. They're privately owned. So there is a stakeholder issue with each one of those banks. But they have the same responsibilities that the Bank of Canada has although they do have a profit incentive, whereas the Bank of Canada does not. One of the defining features that separates the central bank from privately owned commercial banks is that it does not hold retained earnings, which means that on its balance sheet, it doesn't have a profit. It means it doesn't have money just sitting around to buy stuff. Anytime the Bank of Canada acquires a security, and I use that specific language because – um, that's what they use in all the publications that the Bank of Canada issues. And to me, it's much more accurate than purchasing securities because what the Bank of Canada does, it either creates settlement balances or it creates money. It does one of those two things uh, depending on the procedure uh, when it acquires securities either directly from the government or from the secondary market, um, from private institutions, and we can go into detail later on about the difference between the primary market and the secondary market.
1: At the highest level, still on on the question of uh, identifying the players, is is there not um, a connection or a network of central banks who all look to the Bank of International Settlements as their um, lender of last resort, and they're also their director, who directs their policy.
0: Uh, no, I would disagree with that, um, because the central bank, Canada's central bank, does not borrow. But does it take its direction from the Bank of International Settlements with respect to policy, Basel II, and all that sort of thing? Yes. So, so that is definitely true, uh, what you're saying, is that they're independent in their own country, but how they deal with other banks and stuff, they have to follow a set of rules
1: all right. So in the question of the creation of money, which is our topic today, um, my mind first goes to what you already identified in the first episode, which is the creation of money as far as the retail uh, client is concerned. So if somebody goes walks into a bank, wants to get a mortgage loan, as soon as they qualify to get that loan, then the money is created uh, in their account. The popular notion is, of course, that the bank has taken those funds from depositors, <laughs> and but I think you know anyone who's scratched the surface of the issue knows that that's just not the case. Uh, so that the bank creates money. Uh, the commercial bank now I'm talking about creates the money. Uh, the, the phrase is ex nihilo, out of nothing makes the deposit in your account. And then, as you pointed out in Episode 1, the uh, borrower is then on the hook to repay that money plus interest, not using uh, false money, but actually real money that they've, real money in the sense that it must result from their productive work. They have to go out and earn that money to repay. But I think you want to describe the money creation process more at the institutional level also. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm going to first start with something anecdotal. Because you said something that you still hear, like at the top levels of academia, where economists will say, yeah, well, the banks, they lend out deposits. Okay, so this is anecdotal, but it's an absolute proof that this is not the way it works. Uh, For example, Ed, I'll ask you this. Has your account ever dropped, say, suddenly, say, by $10,000? And uh, you go, what's going on here? What happened to my $10,000 here? Don't worry, Ed. We're just lending out your deposits. It's okay. Has that ever happened to you?
1: <laughs> but but you play a little trick with yourself in your mind, and you think, okay, even though I've never received a notice that my bank balance has dropped because somebody somebody needed to borrow it, what you do is you imagine, okay, all of the depositors' funds are going into a pool. It's, maybe it's an accounting fiction. It is an accounting yes. fiction. It's a fiction. <laughs> We imagine it to sort of comfort ourselves that it's the same pool of money that's being transferred back
0: and forth between borrowers and lenders, but it's... It's totally false, and, it, and again, it goes to how it's taught in economics. So there's you know there's some good stuff, like in the courses that I took, uh, but when it comes to money in banking, it is pretty bad, and they, they treat um, banks like they're intermediaries, but the actual origination of money starts in the private banking system.
1: One author that I have in mind is Stephen Midford Goodson. He's also reported that uh, when he takes economic courses and attends uh, seminars, he discovered that these highly placed and knowledgeable people are are ignorant with respect to the money creation process. They simply subscribe to the piggy bank notion. And then in my own experience, I followed uh, this guy's uh, advice. He created an investment system and this guy's qualified, he's got all the certifications and everything in finance. He said, what I decided to do was act exactly like the banks do. I'm going to borrow at a certain rate and I'm going to lend out at a higher rate and that way I'll make a spread." It's absolutely pervasive in the system among non-experts and experts alike. Mm I'd like you to go ahead and uh, explain the process as you were suggesting. Go ahead.
0: Well, there's really only two things that a a loans officer considers when you go in to, say, uh, get a loan for your car or whatever. So as soon as they're satisfied that uh, there's a really good chance that you can pay it back, that's tick number one. And the second one is how much profit the bank can make. They create money, and then they charge interest, and then they, that's the money they get to the keep is the interest. So that's called the spread. Once he's established that, then the first step is actually just typing numbers into a database. Okay, there's $10,000, you can put $10,000 in, in your account. And then it's recorded using double entry bookkeeping, which means that um, on the asset side of the balance sheet, uh, that's where the loan is situated. So you got $10,000 for a loan. This is on the bank's balance sheet. And on the liability side, you have the deposit, which is the money that you see in your account, an asset equal to a liability. So it expands the balance sheet. John Kenneth Galbraith, who said the process by which banks create money is so simple, the mind is repelled. So then the next question is, OK, so uh, because There's this fiction of a fractional reserve banking system, and it's still taught, again, to the highest levels of academia. But even when there were fractional reserves, uh, for example, in Canada, um, fractional reserves were actually completely eliminated in July of uh, 1994. Uh, But even prior to that, it didn't work like that. Banks did not lend out excess reserves. What they did is they created the loans first, And then they go looking for reserves later. Fractional reserve
1: policy is is not what is happening now. That's been replaced by, I guess, what's called capital requirements. Is that right? That's correct. What we're discovering is that uh, fractional reserve lending, perhaps, it's it's an antiquated notion.
0: Yeah, it really is an antiquated notion. Um, so when you look into the complications of
1: capital adequacy requirements, doesn't it just uh, at the end of the day resolve to how many good bets the, the bank has made and how many bad bets they've made
0: and they do a ratio and discover uh, how much they can lend out? It is a wild, convoluted mess. I published a video a couple of years ago. Um, on the analysis of, of capital adequacy requirement ratios. So the actual PDF show, if you scroll down, the absurdity of, of the whole system and the fact that they, they have a, an internal ratings-based approach, which is one way where they themselves determine the risk. It's so incredibly complicated and unnecessarily so. It puts a veil on the complexity of the system. Why would you make this thing more complicated than it needs to be? Well, the only thing that I can come up with is that it's more advantageous to the people that are manipulating the numbers. Well, that's interesting. In my work in risk
1: management, uh, it would always drive me crazy when they talk about doing risk assessment on financial or investment projects. And they said, oh, yes, the uh, financial institution has an internal risk rating system. And uh, and it's, it's got all these categories of different kinds of business, rate of default. That's a ridiculous way to conduct a risk assessment. What you want to do is sit down with a round table and actually examine the business and all of the aspects of it and come up with a realistic assessment of the risk. But they simply love numbers. They love to crunch the numbers and come up with all the probabilities. And the, the answer to that is, well, we don't have the data to be able to put in the
0: probabilities for these losses. Um, well, that's actually an excellent point. You're exactly right. It's all about uh, trying to uh, forecast probability of default. So there is validity to that. It's just like it's exactly what insurance underwriters do. But the problem is the bank always wants to create numbers that favor the bank's position. And because of this veil of complexity, it's very difficult to ascertain how legitimate their their risk assessments are. When you look at how the system is designed, they're never at risk. Like in 2008 during the financial crisis, these guys were doing criminal fraud. None of them went to jail. But you know what they did get bonuses and golden handshakes? And it could be much simpler, like under the PMC proposal. Eventually, we would eliminate things like that. It would be much simpler and again, more transparent. Uh, the Bank of Canada is uh, the most transparent financial institution that we have in Canada. Uh, they, they publish their balance sheet every week. You can easily access information. But the private banks, I can't get anything from a commercial bank.
1: Okay, so far in our discussion, Jeff, I think we've established two main points. One is there's a, a loans creation process as far as the, the retail client is concerned where they simply make a, a, an entry on the keyboard to credit your account, but that money is created really out of nothing, and they start to charge you interest. And the second was that um, when we're looking into lending requirements or capital adequacy requirements we discovered that there's a huge complexity which you suspect is really a veil. It's a cover in order to allow them to manipulate the numbers so that they're never really at risk on building the building the local economy, investing in local businesses, and so on. Unless their bet is really guaranteed or they have really significant collateral. It's
0: funny actually. There's a quote from Bob Hope. We're kind of dating ourselves using Bob Hope. <laughs> <laughs> But he says, you know, yeah, banks will uh, only lend you money if you don't need it.
1: That reminds me of a quote from Mark Twain. He said, the banker is the man who will lend you his umbrella. But when it starts to rain, he wants (laughs) it. Yeah, that's a good
0: one. Yeah,
1: that's a good one. If we were to play devil's advocate and we had a banking representative Mm -hmm. here, who, who we, we may never get on the program, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but wouldn't they say, no, that's not true. Uh, we can demonstrate that we look at businesses in a fair way. We have to maintain the integrity of our own business, so we're not going to make bad bets. But we give the local businesses a fair shake and lend money to them so that they can build up the community. Is that a legitimate argument?
0: For sure. But then he's going to quote exactly what uh, we were just discussing. He'll use statistical data, which is true. Like most small businesses fail. So how much does a bank want to invest its main goal is profit so it never thinks about terms of making a society or a local uh, geographical area better to improve it
1: that's an important point because uh, when we're
0: talking about the money
1: creation process the decision process to lend for the building of productive enterprises in the community is conditioned by this concern for making a corporate profit right Uh, You know, as someone who's listened to a lot of Austrian economics, I can't say that corporate profit in and of itself is a bad thing, but when it comes to the public utility or infrastructure of money, control over that, that's when it becomes crucial not to have it in private hands. Yes, I totally agree. All right, there's another aspect of the discussion which we started to touch on, but I think we need to circle back around, and that is um, the money creation process, but at a higher institutional level. So here we're talking about um, the interaction between the commercial banks and the central bank. I'll let you break it
0: down and, and present it to, to me and the listeners in a way that makes sense. Okay, so the Bank of Canada is actually creating money for the government or it's uh, purchasing securities off the secondary market. So first of all, the secondary market is um, government-issued securities that are already out there floating around on the market. So they're being bounced back and forth, being traded to here and there, mostly held by banks and trust companies and pension funds, things like that. Uh, because it's the most secure investment that you can make. And
1: why is it the most secure? Sorry to interrupt. Why is it the most secure investment? Because it's backed by the
0: taxpayer. Is that correct? Well, it's backed by the government's promise to pay it back, and they've never defaulted. Um, but they also are a much lower yield. So um, banks, again, uh, because of the arrangement that they have with the government and the Bank of Canada, uh, it's sort of a requirement that they hold these, these securities um, um, but uh, they would rather invest in things that provide uh, a larger return on a shorter in a shorter period of time, um, with no thought about the future. That's one part of it. The Bank of Canada, and again, this is from the Parliamentary Library of Canada, uh, also the Bank of Canada statements. Whenever the federal government actually issues securities, it means that, that they're doing it uh, to cover a shortfall in funding from taxes and revenue. So when they do that, uh, the Bank of Canada actually will inject, in, aqu- in acquiring a security, will inject money into the consolidated revenue fund for the government to spend. But the majority of it is absorbed by the privately owned commercial banking sector.
1: We talked about the uh, money creation process ex nihilo, out of nothing, at the retail level in the commercial bank when we go in to get a mortgage. But now what you've just described, if I understand you correctly, is that the central bank is creating money out of nothing in order to transfer it to, to the treasury department, to government. Is that correct? correct. Okay, interesting. So we've got uh, money creation occurring at two levels, the institutional level and down at the retail level. It's a... Uh, I suppose, a, a legislated or, or statutory license
0: to create money out of nothing. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually difficult to nail down because I requested some kind of law that allows banks to create money. The regulatory body for the commercial banking sector is the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions. So I sent them a direct question. What law is in place that allow banks to create money through the loans process? And I could not get a direct answer. And then in the end, they said, we uh, suggest you seek legal advice on this issue. <laughs> wow. That's from the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, which regulates the private banking sector. But did you get an answer to the question at the Bank of Canada level? Well, yeah. Well, the Bank of Canada Act, which is can be sometimes vague, so that's where you want to look. Um, but again, there is no real specific thing to say that the bank can create money ex nihilo. In fact, they avoid the topic like the plague. I've had numerous exchanges uh, with the Bank of Canada. They cannot say that.
1: What is the essential message that you want the listeners to take away with respect to the creation of money? What, what are the lessons that, that we should be learning here?
0: Uh, well, first of all, just to understand where it comes from and that the majority of money is uh, created by the privately owned commercial banking sector and the only reason why a, a, a new loan or new money is created for the most part is because a bank thinks you can make a profit. So that's right away a problem when you're talking about the public good. So what PMC proposes is that we advocate, you know, money creation for the public good. Well, this brings
1: me back around again to, to thinking, well, if we had the Banking industry advocate here in the discussion. I'll just play the devil's advocate for a second. They would say, well, of course, you know, we have to maintain a viable business, and it's perfectly legitimate to have a, a corporation that carries on uh, and delivers a, a needed service and charges for that service. Um, and that's all correct because that's what a free market capitalist system, which creates wealth, is all about. The only difficulty with the argument is that they're controlling a public, what we would conceive to be a public utility, a piece of public infrastructure that is essential to the well-being of of the, the broader number of people. That's well put, Ed. Okay. Well, uh, is there anything else then with respect to the topic of money creation? We've t- talked about it at the highest level, Bank of Canada. We've talked about it at the institutional level for the retail client. We've talked about the banking industry and the fact that it has it has obscured, in, in many ways, the, its own internal processes, so there's a lack of transparency.
0: Yeah. This uh, provides actually a good segue into the uh, next episode. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, check the show notes and visit our website progressivemoney.ca